Well, this morning as we talk about Christmas and we start about uh, thinking about Christmas, we're going to open together the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or if you see a pew Bible in front of you, please do come with me because this is going to be great fun as we go into Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and the first 17 verses are full of lots of names. So boys and girls, what I want you to do this morning as we read through this passage, you might run out of fingers and toes, but I want you to try and count up how many names we have in our passage, okay? Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of names. You try and count how many names we have as we make our way through this. And the point being, when's Jesus' name going to appear? Okay? So, we're going to read this together, Matthew chapter 1, and we're beginning to read at verse 1. This is God's Word to us. A record of the genealogy. Now, what's the genealogy, boys and girls? That just means the big family tree, okay? A record of the genealogy, all the descendants, all the forefathers. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You keep in count? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abimadad, and Abimadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, we can sort of take a little, little breath, can't we? See the pause? Okay, there's been lots of names so far. Still not Jesus, but we've got to David. We've got to King David, okay? Now, we pick it up again. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asha, Asha the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jeruam, Jeruam the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, there's another little break, isn't there? Still no Jesus. Okay, then verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetil, and Shetil was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abidud, and Abidud was the father of Elikiam, and Elikiam was the father of Ezar, and Ezar was the father of Zodak. Zadok. And Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim. And Achim was the father of Eilut. 
and Elud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Amen. Lovely. Well, let's uh, turn together to Matthew chapter 1, those verses that we read earlier, Matthew chapter 1, page uh, 965, the Pew Bibles. I don't know if you're someone who is interested in your family history. I, I've become a little bit more interested over the years. Maybe it's just a function of, of getting a bit older. Uh, a few years ago, we spent a bit of time in the northeast of Scotland in the summer holidays, and we had uh, driven up to an area north of Aberdeen, an area called uh, Rhiney, where Katrina's mother's family, and that side of the family, had come from. And we were, we were just driving through that countryside, and we saw this isolated rural church. We didn't really know much about the area, and there was a graveyard there, and we decided to stop. And sure enough, after a few moments wandering around the graveyard, we discovered all these headstones with the, the family names on them and so on, some names that we recognized and others that we didn't. And we got that sense that people get whenever they discover such things, that we're, we're part of a story that has started long before us. Now, if you're a teenager here, you might want to go home and thank your parents that your holidays are so much more interesting than the McCulloch's holidays. Um, but if you had been an ancient Jew, uh, you would have been pretty interested in that sort of thing because being part of a big story was hugely important to you. And Matthew, it seems, would have been one of those people who would have been very much interested in such things because as he begins to tell the story of Jesus, as we've seen, he begins by giving us a family tree. It's not a way that we would perhaps start, but it's hugely important for Matthew. And I'm sure that we haven't heard this preached on all that much. Usually we, we tend to jump in at, at verse 18 as far as the Christmas story is concerned. But obviously Matthew has a strong reason as to why he begins his gospel where he does. And we want to try and grasp some of that uh, this morning. This Christmas we're thinking about the fact that the one who came to Bethlehem is the king. And today in, in Matthew we see that he is the long-promised king. Uh, his coming was, was long planned throughout uh, all this family history. God is at work to bring this about. And what we'll see is that as some of these themes develop through, through Matthew, uh, Matthew sort of unpacks them. Uh, Matthew focuses the story on Joseph and on the, the, the big events that, uh, that, that he tells us about. They, they are the visits of the wise men and the, the Herod's subsequent slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem. He doesn't mention the shepherds at all. And part of what he does is he un, unpacks some of the things that we sort of get hinted at here in these first verses. We're going to just look at three simple things. Um, that we're told about the promised king, that he's come for everybody, that he's come to put things right, and that he's come to set us free. And whenever we look at that, we'll see briefly then just how he, he does that. So he's the one, first of all, the promised king is the one who has come for, for everyone. 
Now, as we were reading the passage, and John broke this up very helpfully for us, as, as we were reading the passage, you'll notice that Matthew groups this family tree into a particular pattern of, of th- uh, three groups uh, of names. We see that in verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Three sections, 14 generations. Now, Matthew has really sort of pressed Jesus' family tree into this structure. In some places, a, a number of the generations are skipped out, and actually the word that the NIV translates as was the father of can equally mean the ancestor of. So he hasn't done anything uh, inappropriate in this, of course. Many of the Jews saw great significance in numbers at the time. Clearly, that was so for, for Matthew. It's harder to see it for us perhaps, but there's, and there's some debate over how he's done this. Maybe the best suggestion for those who are maybe interested in this is that for a Jewish reader, they would not have just seen this as three groups of 14, but as six groups of seven. And they, they, they lead to Jesus being born at the beginning of the, the seventh group of seven. If you know, you know seven for the Jews, that perfect number. And so the, the message there is that, that here he's been waited on for generations and he's arrived at the perfect time as the perfect one, perfect fulfillment of all that has been waited for. Well, anyway, the first of these three sections is the one headed by Abraham. Matthew says that uh, Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And every Jew, you might know this, that every Jew sort of claimed to have Abraham as their father. It's part of what being Jewish meant. But this was emphasizing more than just the fact that Jesus was a good Jew. Abraham was the one to whom God had come and called him out and promised to make him into a great nation, and not only that, but promised to bless all of the nations through him. You remember, we've seen that as we've been looking at at Abraham's story recently. And as we read the story of Abraham, we, we know that this promise has been given, and yet we don't really see it being fulfilled. All the way through, there's this sort of this question, well, okay, the promise has been made to, to bless the nations. How, how is this going to happen? And we see hints of it in Abraham's story. Remember we mentioned at one point that he gathers a group of people around him. So he's building some sense of a building of the nations. And then as after Abraham, there are hints of it, things like the Queen of Sheba coming from a foreign land and seeing how God has blessed his people and being really struck by that. But you wouldn't say that there's been a huge blessing to the nations. In many ways, the blessing of God is confined to the Jewish people. And so as you read your way through the Old Testament and the history of Israel, this whole question remains, how are the nations going to be blessed? God has promised that to Abraham, but, but how would the nations be blessed? By how and by whom? And then Jesus comes, and he's the one in whom all the nations are blessed. He's the one who Matthew tells us, wise men come from the nations to visit. So the first real admirers, according to Matthew, are those from outside of the people of God. And of course, remember how Matthew's gospel ends. Jesus has died for sin, opened up a way to God, stands on a mountaintop and tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, you see. Jesus is the one in whom all the nations are blessed. 
God has promised to do it. Christ has done it. And the message can now go to all nations through Sat7, through people going across the world, through, through whatever means, through people coming here. The message is going to all nations that there's a God who loves them, who is freely available to all, who call on Him in Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to remember, isn't it, that Jesus has come for everyone. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what country you're from. doesn't matter where you grew up. doesn't matter where you've been. doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus has come for you. We'll be able to go round the doors and knock on doors on Wednesday night, inviting people to our carol services or church services, confident that whoever opens the door, there will be no one who opens the door and may say, oh, sorry, we didn't know you were here. This is not relevant for you. Not, not one person. I wonder, are some of us thinking, I wonder, could this Jesus be for me? Well, it is the case that whoever we are, we are not disqualified because He is the one who has come for everyone. Second thing we see here in this big list of names, this family tree, is that He's the one who's come to put things right. Second heading, second section headed by David. Who was David? Well, David was the great king, of course. Israel was perhaps more prosperous under Solomon. The temple was built and so on. But nevertheless, it was David who was looked on as the pinnacle of kingship. He blended all the ideal kingly qualities. He was a, a fearsome warrior. He was a wise ruler. He was a, a man after God's own heart. And the time when David ruled was seen as the golden age for the people of God, a time that they longed to see again. But of course, it wasn't perfect. The, the incident with Bathsheba told us that he was far from being a perfect king. Now, if you think what it is we look for whenever we look for a ruler, what do we come up with? Well, we, we want someone to be just. We want someone to right the wrongs and deal with evil. That's the burden of society for government, isn't it? We want them to rule well, that, that society might be a happy and a content place under uh, good rulers. And, and the, the thing is that because David was not a perfect king, he was not really able to bring perfection into his kingdom. He was always going to have a problem because there was sin in his life, but there was also sin in the kingdom, and he couldn't really deal with that because it was in the people. And so he wasn't really ever able to rule perfectly or brilliantly. Sin is the thing that destroys the rule of the king, you see. It did for David and for every king after him. It does for governments now. But for David, there was a promise. There was a promise that there would be one who would come in his line who would do a much, much better job. There would be a future blessing in his line. 2 Samuel 7 says of David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. His line would continue, and one day the perfect king would come. And then Jesus arrives. Jesus, the son of David, in David's line. He doesn't look like a king. Initially, he's, he's born in a stable and not in a palace. But some people recognize that there's more going on. The wise men travel hundreds of miles, and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? 
Later in his ministry, he talks about his kingdom. He talks about his kingdom values. On the day that he rode into Jerusalem, Matthew says it was to fulfill what the prophet said, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. You see the the crowd called Hosanna to the son of David. Shortly afterwards, he was crucified. And above his head, there was a sign which said, the king of the Jews. So here was the king, you see. And what was he doing on a cross? Well, he was dealing with the very problem that obstructed his rule, the very problem that has made all kings before him impotent. He had no sin of his own, but he needed to deal with the sin of others so that his rule might be effective and complete. He needed to deal with your sin and mine so that one day he could welcome us into his perfect rule. Don't you long for this? We do long for this, even if we don't always recognize it. Don't you turn, turn on the news sometimes and you, you watch the latest headlines with just sorrow and you think, what on earth is going on in our world? Surely our world should be better. Surely it would be a, a marvelous place if, if peace and justice reigned. Don't you find yourself sitting at the bed of a loved one or standing beside those who've been bereaved and saying, wouldn't it be great if, if there was no more mourning or crying or pain? Wouldn't it be great if there was a, a perfect king who could, who could wipe away tears? And you see, this is the king that you long for and that Jesus is. He's the, he's the one whose eventual kingdom we get a, a tantalizing insight into in Revelation when it says, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. When you turn on the news and you see the latest heartbreak, part of your heart longs for this king. He's come to put everything right, and this will be our story if we're believers today. It's what lies ahead for us. He's the one who's come to put it right. Thirdly, he's the one who's come to set us free. Because there's a third group of ancestors, there's a third sort of branch, as it were, to the family tree, although it's all one family tree. And, and the third section is dominated by the exile. Now, we, we tend not to know so much of this part of the history of God's people, but, but all the kings that followed after David got worse and worse, and eventually God allowed the nations to overrun his people, and they were carried off to Babylon, sort of Iran-Iraq direction. It was a, a heartbreaking time. It was a time when Psalm 137 was written. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. Can you, can you hear the, the heartbreak of an exiled people? There on the pop poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said to us, sing one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? You hear the heartbreak. 
They were exiles, they were captives. They so went desperately wanted to be back in the land, back to the place that God had for them. And sure enough, eventually that happened under the leadership of people like Nehemiah and Ezra. They, they, they did eventually return. They left their exile behind. And you see, Jesus stands in that line too. You see, whoever we are, we are captives, aren't we? One of the great cries of people today is freedom. I want to be free. I want to be able to do what I want to do. And yet in these days of apparently great freedom, we've never really been more enslaved, have we? We're enslaved to all the things we run after. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It's becoming increasingly relevant to us, isn't it? Whenever we live for something other than God, we are sinning, and we're at the same time enslaved. So let's say, for example, we live for, for money, for possessions. We say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to gather up everything I have. I'm not going to be dependent on anybody else. I'm going to get as much as I can get. And, and we get it, perhaps, and then we invest it in cryptocurrency, and we lose it. And what happens? We are devastated because the thing that we set our heart on has been taken from us. That thing enslaves us, you see. And it will be the same if we set our heart on anything else, on, on fame or family or, or power or comfort or popularity, whatever it might be. Anything other than God will enslave us. Only He can set us free. And Jesus did come to set us free, to lead us out from that place, just like He led His people out from the exile, to lead us to God, because only in serving Him do we find freedom. He came to set us free. So, so there's this family tree, you see. On the one hand, it, it seems quite simple. We would quickly, if this was your quiet time reading, you'd, you'd sort of scan through it. I remember my old minister in Aberdeen used to come to a list of names sometimes, and he would say, and, 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 and there was so-and-so and so-and-so, and all his friends, and, and then he would just carry on. <coughs> and and, and we, we would maybe want to do that. But actually, this is part of the story. In fact, it is the big story. It's the story of how at a certain point in history, God came near in Jesus Christ. God entered our world in Christ. He was long promised. His lineage was carefully controlled by God, carefully reported by Matthew, and through it, he tells us that this promised king has come for everyone. He's come to put it right, and he's come to set us free. Now, the question is, just for a moment, how does he do this? How is it that Jesus opens up the way to God for everyone, puts it right, and sets us free? Well, there's a little clue in the family tree about this. There's a pointer. And what you might have noticed on the way through is that in this ancestral list, there are four women mentioned. And that was very unusual in those days because normally in those family, ancient family trees, they were traced through the male line. But it's unusual, too, because of who they are. Who are they? There's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, and there's Bathsheba, or Uriah's wife, as she's referred to here. Now, what's notable about these women? Well, some of them are Gentiles for a start. So they're, again, pointing to that fact that Jesus would bless the nations. But they are also the skeletons in the cupboard, 
It's one of the risks, isn't it, of looking into your family tree. You always find it. You're related, you're descended from a, a cattle rustler from Ruth Ryland, you know, and, and, and uh, it, 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 it's almost inevitable. There'll be somebody, and you, you ask your, your, your granny, so tell us about the family tree, and, they, and, and you ask about great-uncle so-and-so and great-great-great-uncle so-and-so, oh, we don't talk about them. Skeletons in the cupboard. Every family has them. And if you look into to our history, you'll find it that somewhere along the line, there'll be somebody around whom there is some scandal. Now, now these women were, were tainted by scandal to some degree. Tamar uh, seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was an adulteress. And Ruth came from the dubious Moabite line, incestuous line from Lot, and as a destitute widow, she married the prosperous Boaz. So there was really something sort of hanging around all of them. And, and as I said, every family has them. So why emphasize them here? Well, isn't it interesting? We said a moment ago, God is in control of this family tree. There's not one of these names here out of place. There's not a, a line through which this family tree descended that God did not plan perfectly. And so we have to ask, well, why does it not descend through kings and queens and upright moral types? Well, God's making a point, isn't it? He's preparing the way for the birth of his son on the one hand into circumstances that are surrounded by scandal. Christmas story involves this young Mary, pregnant while unmarried. And you can imagine in that society what a big issue that was. There was scandal there. But that's only part of it because God was preparing the way for the greatest scandal of all. He was preparing the way for the fact that his spotless son would be the one who would bear sin. He is the one who takes our scandal by becoming a scandal, the scandal of the cross. That's why we, we, we look at Jesus' line and we see people who, who fail and people about whom there is a scandal because Jesus is the one who's come to take it. And the biggest scandal that we have, that you and I have, is that though we were made by God and for God, we have rebelled against him. That is the, that is the outrage about your life and my life in the universe. That's a scandal in which we're all involved and embroiled. And because we're all wrapped up in it, we don't think it's so bad, but it is. And the marvelous thing is that Jesus has stepped right into it. He is the one who can take our scandal, the scandal of our rebellion against God. And because of that, the gospel has come for everyone. Because of that, all things will be put right. And because of that, you and, and me, we, we can be set free. So the question for us this morning as we, we start our journey to Christmas again is now that Jesus has come, that he's come for everyone, that he's come to put things right, that he's come to set us free, the question is, have we come to him? 
In a sense, the question is, who bears our scandal? Who bears our shame? Has he taken it? Or are we holding on to it and saying, well, I just don't want to even look at this, but I certainly don't want to hand it over. I'm just going to deal with it myself. Do you know what? That's a, that's a load that you cannot bear. But Jesus can. And so we need to come to him at Christmas because we need to be set free and we need to be part of all things being put right. And we can be because he's come for everyone and that means he's come for you.